Well, as Pastor Justin said, it is a joy to be gathering with you again on God's day to open God's Word, and so I would invite you to do that. Turn in your Bible to Lamentations chapter 2, and as you are doing so, please stand once more for the reading of God's Holy Word. Lamentations chapter 2, if you kind of find the Psalms and go to the right, eventually you'll find Isaiah, and after Isaiah, Jeremiah, and after Jeremiah, Lamentations you get to Ezekiel, you've gone too far. Pump the brakes and go backwards. Lamentations chapter 2, and we are going to continue our sermon series through Lamentations this morning by taking up chapter 2, or poem 2. And so let me read in your hearing now, beginning in verse 1. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes, in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garment, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raise a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city. As their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. 
Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss. They gnash their teeth. They cry, we have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we longed for. Now we have it. We see it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see, with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Please take your seats, brothers and sisters. To the west of Jerusalem, there lies a rocky hill just outside of the Damascus Gate. And in the face of that hill is a cave that from the ancient time was called the Grotto of Jeremiah. The tradition tells us that after Nebuchadnezzar's annihilation of the holy city, Jeremiah fled there to write his lamentations. Tradition also tells us that the sound of weeping that echoed from that cave made it clear that not just the city of Jerusalem was destroyed that day, but the prophet himself was likewise destroyed. And what is before us this morning, beloved, is the second of those dreadful lamentations that Jeremiah penned. Now you will perhaps recall from several weeks ago that Lamentations is a collection of poems. Poems that are mourning the judgment of God that he poured out upon his people. More specifically, what you find really is the sound of weeping. Don't miss the big picture. You have the holy city that is Jerusalem and it has been utterly destroyed. With it, you have the holy temple. This is the place where God dwelled. It too has been demolished. And the holy people of God, those in covenant with God, they have been deported. It's important to make the connection here that this is no random event. Nor is this simply a case of one nation merely upending another nation. These things happen all the time, of course. No, the fact is that this is God's covenant people with God's temple in God's promised land. And what you need to understand and that is that it has all come to an abrupt end. 
Which means that what they are experiencing here in Lamentations, the nightmares keeping them up, that pit that you get in your gut, the haunting feeling that paralyzes you, it all amounts to this. The promises of the covenant have failed. It has finally happened. God's people have finally outsinned God's grace. After all, how else do you explain the burning buildings, the foreign flags, and the smell of corpses rotting in the street? That's the feeling of lamentations. And it is perhaps most poignant here in our passage. I say that because Lamentations 2 is perhaps the heaviest of all of the poems in this book. We just read it, did we not? It's ugly. It's raw. It's haunting. It's rated R. And if you were to actually peel back the layers of the soul here in Lamentations chapter 2, all you would discover is sorrow. Sorrow because sin provokes God's wrath. And it is God's wrath that is put on full display before us this morning. Now this wrath of God is seen and heard and felt throughout this chapter with quite provocative language. For example, in verse 2 we read that the Lord has swallowed up without mercy His people. God has Verse 2, broken down in his wrath. And he has, end of verse 2, brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He's speaking of Israel. We might say today that God went so far as to rub their noses in it. Maybe another way to view this whole thing is from the perspective of what we'll call this morning rabbit's foot theology. What I mean is this, the people of God viewed themselves as somewhat untouchable. They were lucky. They couldn't lose, so they thought. After all, God dwelt with them. Remember, right there in Jerusalem was the sacred temple. And guarding the temple were God's own priests. And remember what's inside the temple? The very Ark of the Covenant. Beloved, if God ever had a zip code, it was there. Surely then, nothing bad would ever happen to Jerusalem. That was God's city. That was God's house. But of course, God has no patience for rabbit's foot theology. Verse 6, thunders. He, that is God, has laid waste His booth like a garden, laid in ruins His meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in His fierce indignation has spurned King and priest. And then verse 7 adds, The Lord has scorned His altar, disowned His sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. God 
tore it all down. Even his very own house. Which should forever imprint on the minds of those people then and on our minds today that nothing made by human hands can ever save us. Not even God's own temple. Perhaps the most unexpected way in which God's wrath is seen and heard and felt is how God portrays Himself as a divine warrior fighting against His enemies. Now, to be fair, that's not new. The Scriptures are pregnant with the picture of God, as it were, mounting up and fighting as a warrior on behalf of His people. What is remarkably new here, though, in Lamentations 2 is that God is pictured not fighting for His people, but fighting against them. The middle of verse 3 records that God has withdrawn from them His right hand, that is, His strength, in the face of the enemy. Verse 4 adds, He has bent His bow like an enemy, the text says, with His right hand set like a foe. And verse 4 goes on, And He has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out His wrath, like uh, His fury rather, like fire. And then in case we miss it, verse 5 announces the haunting reality that the Lord has become like an enemy. Just as God mounted up and fought against Pharaoh and defeated Egypt. So now God is fighting against Israel. Just as a warrior might unsheath his sword and attack his enemy. So the true and living God has turned to strike out at His very own covenant people. In a lot of ways, then, we could say that verses 1 through 9 is the view from 30,000 feet. That means that verses 10 through 13 give us sort of the street level. And I warn you, it is haunting. Verse 10 paints a sobering picture. We read that the elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. Church, as we zoom in to the street level, consider both what we find here, the posture and the attire. In terms of posture, notice that the leading men of the city, they are referred to as the elders. What are they doing? Well, they're sitting. And the young women have bowed their heads and they are likewise sitting silently. Here's the point. They're not out shopping. No one is meeting for lunch at Applebee's. Mirth is completely absent. In addition, consider their attire. They are wearing sackcloth on their bodies and their heads are covered with dust. Now granted, this sounds altogether foreign to our ears, but culturally, this was altogether a familiar and poignant expression of utter sorrow. From the old men, the elders, to the young women, 
the whole community is utterly grief-stricken. But it's not just the community experiencing this severe suffering. The prophet himself is undone. In fact, verses 11 and 12 give us a glimpse into the heart of Jeremiah. What does he see? What does he hear? Well, he sees babies left alone in the street for dead. The end of verse 11 is chilling. Infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. That's what he sees. What does he hear? Only their blood-curdling cries as they starve to death. You can hear them in verse 12 if you dare. They cry to their mothers, Where is bread and wine? As their lives expire. The whole thing, it makes Jeremiah sick. Literally. His eyes are spent with weeping and his stomach churns. Verse 11. There are no more tears left for him to cry. He's gone bone dry. All the while, middle of verse 11, Jeremiah says, my bile is poured out to the ground. Don't miss the vulgarity of it all. His stomach is empty, but his puke bucket is full. Church, this whole scene, as tragic as it is, it is intended to put one thing front and center, namely, God's wrath. What we see here is sin's reward. Rebellion's recompense. It is the violent and uncomfortable and terrifying reality of God unsheathing His sword. Beloved, this, biblically speaking, is justice. And it should be pointed out that God had warned them. The prophet Jeremiah had been warning God's people about this impending doom for decades. If you doubt me, spend your afternoon reading through the prophet Jeremiah. What you will find is that from beginning to end, the people of God are called to repent. But they refuse to repent. And instead of repenting, they continue to harden their hearts and stiffen their necks. Instead of hearing and heeding the words of the true prophet of Jeremiah, they gladly receive the words of false prophets. Verse 14 explains the tragedy. Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. The rich irony, of course, church, is that so often people gravitate toward prophets who do not profit. P-R-O-F-I-T. In other words, what I mean is that they would flock to those who would tell them exactly what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. Happens today. Happened in Jeremiah's day. 
He laments of these false prophets. You can read about it in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 14. These familiar words. They have, speaking of the false prophets, they have healed the wound of My people lightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. The same is true today. So many, beloved, in the name of love, lie. Maybe not outright, but they refuse to speak the whole truth. You know, the parts that might cause your brow to furrow. They speak only half-truths. And in speaking half-truths, they tell full lies. This is true often of so much for what passes as quote-unquote Christian counseling and even Christian preaching. I say that because just a sort of a, a cursory sampling of both will reveal that the aim seems to be at stroking egos, coddling sin, absolving guilt, and shifting blame. But such an approach is to say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Let me think of it this way. If you get shot, that bullet needs to come out, right? Let me ask you this. Is that going to hurt? You know, the part about someone digging in your chest cavity and trying to get a bullet out. Is that going to cause pain? And the answer, of course, is absolutely. But if you do nothing to avoid that pain, you will die. Well, similarly, the people of Jeremiah's day refused to undergo the invasive surgery required to have the bullet of their sin removed. Rather than face that uncomfortable procedure, they chose instead to believe lies. Lies like judgment wasn't coming. Sin is not that bad. And God is too good and too loving to ever judge. Lamentation testifies forever. The pain of not removing the bullet is far worse than leaving it in place. And as horrendous as this judgment was, insult was added to injury. Literally. I say that because as at the downfall of God's people, the surrounding nations took every opportunity to mock and to shame them. Verses 15 and 16 make this clear. As Jerusalem burned, they asked sarcastically, is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty? The joy of all the earth? End of verse 15. The enemies of God's people gloated over her, even as they pillaged her, announcing their triumph in verse 16. They said, we have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we long for. Now we have it. We see it. Like Job experienced, it is one thing to suffer. It is quite another to suffer with those around you pointing their bony fingers at you. These pagan nations, these who were notoriously wicked, 
Here they are, quick to pile on, quick to add humiliation to the otherwise humiliated people of God. The the picture that's being painted here is that Israel is altogether isolated. She's alone. She's been completely abandoned. No matter where she looks, whether she looks around to her neighbors or she looks up to her God, she sees only enemies. This itself is an expression of the very wrath of God, is it not? Is there anything worse in all the world than to be left to yourself? To be handed over? For God, as it were, to turn His face from you and leave you to yourself. That is wrath. Now let's be clear. This mocking and this jeering and this wagging of the heads by the enemies of God's people, they are doing all of this because they think they are the big dog in town. They think that Jerusalem's destruction is owing to their own sort of might, their own military prowess. Verse 17, though, is a quick correction, one that perhaps runs a risk of making some of us more than a bit uncomfortable. I say that because while it is true, Babylon was brought to her, uh, Babylon brought Israel to her knees, Babylon was merely a tool. A tool that God wielded. We might say it this way. Babylon was the hammer. But God swung that hammer. Pounding the nail of his people. Verse 17 puts it like this. The Lord. That's the covenant name of God. When you see it in all caps. Yahweh has done what he purposed. And then you just follow the pronouns. He, that is God, Yahweh, He has carried out His Word, which He, God, commanded long ago. He, God, has thrown down without pity. He, God, has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. God has done this. God is the one inflicting suffering. God is the one inflicting this pain. And he is doing it because of his people's sin. And this truth is revealed in more than just verse 17. Catch this. In the first eight verses of chapter 2, God is the subject of 28 verbs. Let me say that again. In just the first eight verses, God says, I'm the one doing the judging 28 times. Now, I'm not going to mention all 28 references to you, but let me draw your attention to just a quick handful. Middle of verse 1. God has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. Verse 2. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the, all the habitations of Jacob. End of verse 2. God has brought down to the ground and dishonored the kingdom and its rulers. Verse 3. He has, that is, God has cast down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. Middle of verse 4. God has killed 
all who were delightful in our eyes. Verse 7, the Lord has scorned His altar. End of verse 8, God caused rampart and wall to lament. There's 28 of those in the first eight verses. Who has done all of this? Babylon? Sort of, I guess. But that would be like walking up to this new, brand new house that someone built and saying, the hammer built that house. It looks nice. No. God has done this. God has meted out His strict and severe judgment upon His people for their sin. Yes, He used Babylon to accomplish His purposes. That is true. But you have to see, standing above Babylon and behind Babylon and around Babylon, ordering all the events of the world, is the one true and living God who is sovereign over all things, including judgment. I think sometimes, and this is true perhaps especially if you are new to Reformed theology, people will think in terms of God, think of God's sovereignty in terms of salvation only. So people will gladly confess that those who are new to Reformed theology that, that God is sovereign in the salvation of His elect people. And that's true. And we have to praise God for it. If God doesn't save us, we ain't going to be saved. But God is ruling and reigning over all things. Not just your salvation and mine. God is sovereign over all of creation. Meaning that He is sovereign to bless a nation. And He is just as sovereign when it comes to Him cursing a nation. I don't know about you, but I remember exactly where I was when the news of 9-11 broke. I was working at Kmart in the electronics department and all of the TVs had the, the coverage plastered and we all just sat there and watched in utter disbelief at what was unfolding before our eyes. And if you recall those days, it was not uncommon to hear all sorts of people take to the airwaves in the days following with a message something like, May God bless America. And may God do so. At the same time though, it was not uncommon to hear these same talking heads stand up and say something like, God had nothing to do with what took place on 9-11. But church, is that true? Is that biblical? I realize it's nice. I realize it's hallmarky. I realize Caleb would run that thing all day long. But is it true? Can we really expect God to bless a nation and then handcuff God from allowing Him to curse a nation? Particularly one that is in utter rebellion to Him. Well, at least for Jeremiah, there was no confusion. He knew exactly what was taking place as he was tucked away in that dark and damp cave. He knew this was God's doing. God had threatened His old covenant people with curses if they failed to obey the law. 
And now Jeremiah was witnessing those curses in real time. And they were terrifying. So terrifying that this judgment had two immediate outcomes. Think of it this way. If God's judgment was a tree, what would the bitter and rotten fruit be? The answer? Cries and cemeteries. Cries and cemeteries. And you see them both near the end of this poem. When it comes to cries, put your eyes on verse 18. We read, Their heart cried to the Lord. Still in verse 18, Let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Verse 19 adds, Arise, cry out in the night. And then the middle of verse 19 declares, Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. There's a little ironic twist here that I want to point out to you. The people, you will notice, are now emulating the prophet Jeremiah. What do we call Jeremiah but the weeping prophet? Judgment has come. Everything and everyone they've ever known or loved has been demolished. It's all come to an end. Think about it. Houses are gone and 401ks are dried up. Families are broken apart and friends are no more. All of the convenience and comfort that they had for so long taken for granted is now absent. And all they see and know and hear and feel and smell is the sting of God's wrath as it is unleashed upon them. All they can do is weep. Their cries are only outdone by the cemeteries. Because of the heinous carnage of God's judgment upon them, corpses now line the streets. Verse 21 catalogs the gruesome reality. In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. This is Jeremiah reflecting. You, speaking of God, have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. Notice, beloved, that the, bo the bodies that are piling up consist of both young and old alike, men and women. There is no discrimination here. This judgment is universal. No one is exempted. Verse 20 is even more shocking. Perhaps the most shocking passage in all of Lamentations. The prophet cries out on behalf of his people, Look, Lord, and see! With whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? Now I realize this is utterly abhorrent. But, but, but if you can, I want you to see how catastrophic this really is. Think about it this way. Where should infants be most safe? Except in the arms of their mothers. But here, they are being devoured by their mothers. That gives you a sense of the level of starvation that had taken place. 
Likewise, where should prophets and priests be afforded reverence and safety? In the sanctuary of the Lord, of course. But here, they are cut down. Zoom out. Look at the carnage. The streets are lined with young and old, men and women. From infants to priests, no one is safe. Taunting. The fact is, Lamentations 2 ends with cannibalism and sacrilege as unburied corpses mount in the streets. And all of it is a fearful result of divine wrath. That's how this second poem ends. Not just with the the smoke of Jerusalem filling the skies, but with the smoke of God's judgment ascending into the heavens. In fact, the second chapter of Lamentations is bookended in such a way as to make this exact point. Take note. Verse 1 begins, how the Lord in His anger, in His anger, has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. And then at the end in verse 22, we read, you summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side, and on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. So what book ends Lamentations 2? The unfettered declaration of the very anger of God against sin. Which raises the question, where do we go from here? How do we, as God's new covenant people, living this side of the cross, how are we supposed to understand Lamentations 2 for us today? What would it look like for you and I to live in light of this horrific chapter in God's Word? Well, allow me in conclusion to offer four truths that we have to face. The first is this. Rebellion has ramifications. Lamentations doesn't whisper this. It shouts it. Grace, beloved, is not license for sin. And when we sin, sin has consequences. Specific to our passage this morning, sin has temporal consequences. That is to say, if and when we sin in this life, we shouldn't be surprised when things in our life go sideways. So so let me just try and and to be really clear and practical in terms of illustrating this, okay? If you sleep around, you should not be surprised when your wife leaves you. If you are one who is prone to lying and gossip, then you ought not to be too shocked when people don't trust you and don't want to talk with you. And if you are a lazy person, it is expected that you will be unemployed and therefore a drain on society and Christ's church. Hear me well. Nowhere does God promise us, old covenant or new, that we can sin with impunity. We do not have the luxury of thinking, well, we are Christians and therefore we can sin and be immune to the consequences. Not so. 
If we learn anything this morning, it is this. Rebellion has real ramifications. Let me offer a second truth Lamentations puts front and center. Repentance is required. Repentance is required. Christian, repentance is not something you just do once when you are converted. No, the life of the Christian is to be a life of repentance. Repentance is part of our DNA. It's who we are. Let's put meat on those bones. Practically speaking, this means that we confess our sin for what it is. We don't make excuses. We don't call it things God doesn't call it. We, we own our sin and we confess it for what it is. It also means that we ask for forgiveness. Those to whom we have sinned against. When necessary, God's, word, God's law in particular is clear here. If we need to make restitution, then we make restitution. And then, included in repentance is that we do what is necessary to change the direction of our lives. And the point is, as Christians, this is not something that we did. It is something that we do. The Second London Baptist Confession articulates it this way. Repentance must continue throughout our lives. And the confession continues. And although there is no sin so small that it is undeserving of damnation, yet there is no sin so great that it will bring damnation on those who repent. Praise God. And then the confession concludes that paragraph by adding this. This makes the constant preaching of repentance necessary. And of course, this is where the people of Lamentations 2 failed. They refused to repent, even when God sent them Jeremiah. Instead of hearing and heeding his words, they plugged their ears and went on with their lives. Redeeming grace, I plead with you, I plead with us, let us not do the same thing. In the face of our sin, we must repent. It is not optional. It's not optional. Here's a third reality we must live in light of. God disciplines disciples. God disciplines disciples. Let me just say very quickly, if, if you are unconverted here this morning, then I am obligated to tell you what God's Word says. And that is this. If you are unconverted, if you are not a Christian, you are right now and you will be on judgment day under the wrath of God. That's what hell is. Hell is the wrath of God being poured out upon unrepentant sinners. And I want to just say to you, my friend, that the horrors of Lamentations 2, all that we've seen this morning, it really does pale in comparison to the hell that awaits those who stiff-arm Christ. So my friend, if that is you, you need to repent. You need to repent and you need to come to Christ and you need to know that you come to Christ because Christ loves sinners.